I'm really excited about Galatians. Uh, usually what we do as a church is we grab a book of the Bible and, and plow our way through it. And uh, Galatians is something that's been on our calendar for a while that I've been uh, particularly excited about, especially in light of the last series we did. So we talked about the five identities, these five realities of who we are when we come to Christ. And we try to make it very practical. Uh, there's this beautiful relationship between, um, you know, we'll say all theology is practical. So everything you believe shows up in the way you live. And oftentimes, uh, looking at the way you live is a better indication of what you believe than necessarily just the words coming out of your mouth. And so there's actions, there's behaviors that reinforce who we are. All of our theology is practical and all of our practice is theology. So this last series was intended to be some practical next steps of what's it look like to be who God says we already are. And now we come here uh, to Galatians and we, we kind of take a step back to look at the significance of belief itself. All of us have deeply held beliefs. Some of us are aware of them. Some of us aren't. Uh, most of us see circumstances as the driving forces in our lives, uh, but they're just simply not, uh, because what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about God, uh, that shapes how we deal with these different circumstances that come before us. Uh, think, of it, think of it this way. Um, imagine two people are applying for a job, and they both get turned down, right? And that's like, I don't know if you've ever been fired or if you've been rejected from a job you really wanted. That is not fun. It's unpleasant. Uh, person one leaves the interview or whatever. He gets the bad news and he leaves kind of with his head down saying stuff like, my dad was right, right? Like, dad was right. I'm never going to amount to anything. This was such a waste. I'm never going to have a job. And he's just totally crushed. Uh, that reveals something about what he believes about himself. Uh, another person could have that same experience and they leave saying more things like, that was the biggest mistake that this company has ever made. I'm going to go do that. And you, like, they have visions of buying their Porsche and doing donuts in the CEO's front yard. Just like, what a huge, you know, that experience of failure or rejection motivates them. The, the one person believes that they're worth hiring, right? They have something to bring to the table. And it was these other guys that made the mistake. The other person believes that they're no good, that they're, they're not worth much of anything. So you have a difference in core belief, and that influences the way you deal with your circumstances. And this is true on personal levels, and it gets true on much, much larger levels. Um, so here's, an, here's a thought experiment for us. Uh, and I hope you guys respond to this better than the first service did. Uh, pretty much everyone agrees murder is wrong, right? Okay, that was better than the first service. They were like, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, right? Yeah? Like they're worried about getting tricked in church or something, right? Most of us agree that murder is wrong. Uh, and an even easier sell is that mass murder is wrong, right? Genocide is wrong. So when you have large scale, one government oppressing another person and killing a whole bunch of people for some political end, almost universally, people agree that that's wrong. But it's not at all obvious why that is. So think about, uh, let's talk evolution for a second. I'm not giving like some grand statement on our church's position on evolution. I'm just saying evolution is the, the dominant view of our day. And I don't know, anybody who's like, no, says precisely, this is how all of this abundance life came out, I think is a little over their uh, depth. Like God spoke. Well, what did he say exactly? And how did that work? I don't know how that worked. Let's not get bogged down in the details of evolution, Okay. 
I don't want the emails about it. Evolution would say that life gets more sophisticated, right? Life improves. We become a higher level of being as the strong outlive the weak. That's just the the basics of the argument. So could we not then make a case that we should be pro-oppression and genocide? Could we not make a case that how will I go about improving humanity? How will I go about uh, advancing the sophistication of the human intellect? Well, I'm going to do that by killing all of the dumb people. It's not entirely obvious why we should say no to that, is what I'm arguing. Um, I think we can make a much more compelling case that if you find yourself in a place of oppression, it's through some long-standing condition of weakness in you. And so why shouldn't we have the strong people just take you out? There must be some, some greater truth that steers that theory of evolution that makes all of us feel like that's not okay. And, and the only system that has an answer for that of what that is, is, is the Judeo-Christian idea of the image of God, that all human life is sacred and worth preserving. That's not something that we drummed up out of nowhere. That's not some scientific theory that we came up with. That's a recognition of what is universal, the internal perspective of almost every human being who's ever lived, that human life is sacred. So you see, if if human life doesn't mean anything, or you believe that we're all just random cells, well then why not? Why not abortion? Why not oppression? Why not genocide? There, there is no compelling argument outside of that. Oppress away. If you can't defend yourself, why shouldn't we? But because of this Christian idea that human life is sacred, that every human being, regardless of capacity, is made in the image of God, because we believe that, and even if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would guess you're not pro-murder. That's the image of God inside of you, saying no, to oppress is wrong. That's, that's evil. To do harm to other people is, is wrong and evil. So here's my point. Every one of us has deeply held beliefs that shape the way we see the world, that shape the way we see ourselves. Uh, some of us are not even close to aware of what those beliefs are. Some of us have deeply religious beliefs, but would claim absolutely no religion. One of the big purposes of the book of Galatians is uh, to appeal to people who have believed lies about God. I love talking to atheists or angry people who have all these bad things to say about God. And it's like, well, let's talk about those things because maybe I don't think the things that you think I think, right? Like maybe we both agree on some of these things about God. Uh, There are few lies that are as dangerous about lies about God because these lies infiltrate the rest of our lives and then shape our experiences. And so this, this is the big motivation behind Paul's writing here. He's, he's appealing to people who have believed lies about God, and this sets the course for the rest of their lives. One of the big questions that Paul sets out to answer in the beginning uh, he, he starts talking about the nature of his authority. He's getting to this idea of who should we believe. Uh, we live in a hyper-connected culture right now, right? Like you can get in touch with anybody, anywhere, anytime. And I see this pretty frequently, mostly on Facebook, the notion that you're all, you're all entitled to your opinion. We know this phrase, right? Everyone is entitled to their own opinion, which I think what they're saying 
is everyone is allowed to have an opinion because you're an a sentient human being, uh, which I kind of get, uh, but I went to kind of a snobby, like, by-the-book private school in high school, and I had teachers that would say things like, that's a dumb question, um, right? So I'm from the school that believes there is such a thing as a dumb question. Um, I'm from the school that believes some people's opinions matter more than other people's. Just because you have an opinion, it doesn't mean at all that it's right or that I should listen to you. Uh, like some of you know, I've been on a bit of a weight loss journey this last year, and in the last month, I've convinced myself I'm dying about six or seven different times because everything feels weird, and I'm, it's very disorienting what I've been through. And so I went to my doctor for my annual physical, and I had blood work done. And I'm looking at all of these numbers, and there's letters by the numbers. And I made the mistake of like getting on Google and looking like, what is a triglyceride, right? Or like, what is a hyptosalmonellolide, right? Like, all, I don't know. You find all of these things. And so I go to my doctor, and it's like, give it, just, just tell me. I'm ready. Just tell me. It's like, you look great. Everything is great. Everything is wonderful. Your blood work's amazing. And so listen, my opinion of my blood work does not matter nearly as much as my doctor's opinion of my blood work. You see that, right? He knows what he's talking about. I do not. Just because you have an opinion or someone else has an opinion or someone else has Googled something doesn't mean that that opinion is any way valid. I saw someone recently describe Twitter as the place where people who don't read books go to criticize people who write books right? Like, that's the world that we live in. You can Google something, and your opinion matters as much as the person who spent 20 years investing their life in this. And I'm just saying, your opinion doesn't matter as much as that. You can develop an idea on something, but that doesn't mean it's right. So if we live in a world where everyone is clamoring, right? Believe this, believe that. Well, did you read this? Well, did you know this? Did you see this leaked document? Did you see this? Like, everyone has this thing. We have to answer the question, who should we believe? Whose voice do we listen to? This is a really hard thing. Like if you're in your 20s, you're going to have to start picking who are the voices that you're going to listen to because everyone is going to tell you what to do with your life. Who should we believe? This is one of the two fundamental issues of the book of Galatians. It's Paul's authority and the nature of the gospel itself. And so Paul is starting off by making an argument for why he is the person that we should believe. So here's what's happened. Paul's traveled around. This church has started. He preached to them the gospel of Jesus. Something beautiful happened. And then these other religious leaders came in. No one's entirely sure who, uh, but our best guess is that it was probably religious folks from Jerusalem, people who had a background in Judaism and that had come to Jesus. And they're, so just imagine, right? Like that's the big city. That is like the holy city. The religious people come down to this small little nowhere Asian church plant and they have their fancy religious robes and they've got their fancy degrees and their big thick books and they begin preaching a different message than the one that Paul had taught. Like they've got brand new hot off the press books that have been expertly designed and they've got a PR campaign and cool logos and whatever, a great mission statement. And this young church is wrestling with who do we believe? Do we believe Paul or should we believe these impressive guys with this new sounding teaching? And so here's how Paul begins his letter, answering this question of who should we believe. This letter is from Paul, an apostle. This letter is from Paul, an apostle. Now, if you're familiar at all with the letters of Paul, you know, like Corinthians or uh, Ephesians, Colossians, these other works that he's written, you'll notice there's a pretty standard formula in every letter he's written. 
He's like, it's Paul writing to you guys, and here's all the reasons I love you. Here's all the reasons I'm thankful for you. Here's all the great things I praise God for you about. And you get none of that here in Galatians. So if you're familiar with the writings of Paul, verse 1 is an indication that Paul is not right. Like, he's upset. I don't mean he's incorrect. I mean, he's upset. He's angry. He doesn't have anything positive to say. He's like, I'm Paul, and I am an apostle. And that means he is a, a sent one, someone who's got delegated authority, someone who's been commissioned. And he makes it clear who he's been sent by. He says, I was not appointed by any group of people or any human authority, as opposed to these other teachers who have come, who maybe they said like, well, you know, this group of men in Jerusalem appointed us to come down here. We come with all of this authority. The board of directors sent us down here. Paul's like, listen, there's no humans that have sent me. There's no humans that have, you know, tapped me on the shoulders and said, go this, go and do this and say this. And in other words, his authority to say what he said is not human in origin. But instead, he says, but I was sent by Jesus Christ himself and by God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. Like that's some serious credentials. Where's my authority come from? By the man Jesus who was sent by God the Father who you may remember raised Jesus from the dead to prove that he is God of the universe. That's where my authority comes from. My authority, Paul says, comes from Jesus Christ himself through God the Father. He's saying, I am an apostle, a capital A apostle with divine authority. He's not just some guy. So, and maybe it's because we're in a seminary town. Maybe it's because everyone wants to be like an innovator or something. But this has become a real problem in the church lately where people will say things like, and you can go read commentaries. If you're like, really, does this exist? I can go send you stuff that you can read. I read it so you don't have to though, right? Like where they'll say, I don't really agree with Paul on this here. Or they'll try to create a schizophrenic Jesus, right? You'll, you'll find people that will say, I don't really read Paul, I just read the Gospels. And it'll sound holy, right? Like, I just want the words of Jesus. Don't give me the words of Paul. And, I, and Paul is saying that, it's like, you know, Jesus sent me, right? Like, it's the authority of Jesus that has empowered me and sent me here. Is Jesus a crazy person where he's gonna preach a message and they'll be like, but I'm gonna send a guy who's gonna say something totally different and confuse everybody for the next 2,000 years. You can't pit Jesus against Paul or Paul against Jesus. Paul has been sent by Jesus and he commissioned Paul with divine authority. So whenever you see somebody that says they disagree with Paul, you have to understand that they're putting themselves at the same level as someone commissioned with, a, with divine authority to write huge chunks of the Bible. When you hear that, you should get very concerned. Someone who thinks they have the interpretive power to rewrite what Paul has said, when Paul is the one who is commissioned and sent by Jesus, a capital A, apostle. In other words, Paul is the doctor and you're the guy who's read WebMD, right? When it comes to matters of the scriptures, the gospel, the mission of Jesus, Paul's opinion matters more than yours. And there are people who have made entire careers, who've become huge names by offering this new insight into what Paul got wrong. And, and we have to see that when people start attacking the scriptures that way, it's always distorting and damaging the gospel. This issue of Paul's authority and the nature of the gospel are not two separate issues. So, who should we listen to? Well, the simple answer is Jesus, the God of the universe, the one who holds all things together moment by moment. And that means 
listening to the people that he entrusted with divine authority to preach the gospel and write the scriptures. These are capital A apostles. And just because somebody at some church gives themselves the name apostle doesn't mean that they are a capital A apostle. I could call myself a doctor, but I'm not a doctor, right? You could call yourself a neurosurgeon, but God help you if you stand before a brain. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is a big deal because people, and there's these churches are in our city where they'll say like, I'm actually Bishop Apostle John J. Jameson or whatever. That's like a Spider-Man thing accidentally for those of you who listen to watch Spider-Man. But you know what I mean? Like they can call themselves that. Did you see the resurrected Jesus? Have you been in his presence? Where did Paul go to seminary? He went to Africa for 13 years. What did he do there? I don't know. He had the whole Bible memorized and then he met Jesus personally. And then Jesus commissioned him. If you have anywhere near the same resume as Paul, maybe we can talk about you having different opinions on the scriptures. But just because you call yourself an apostle, that just, it doesn't mean anything, right? Who do we listen to? We, we believe Jesus and the people that he commissioned and he sent to write the scriptures and teach the gospels. So why is this such a big deal? Why, why is this so important? No lie is as dangerous as a lie about God. So just think about this. For, you, you can go home and, and tickle your brain with this. If I can convince you that people aren't made in the image of God, it's not a very far leap to convince you that there's no problem to kill people. It's no problem to rape people. There's no problem to steal from people, right? Like so much of our morality and ethics is built around this idea that we are imbued with divine value and worth. No lie is as dangerous as a lie about God and what he's done. And when you twist doctrine, when you twist the gospel, it's an attack against the gospel, the person of Christ himself. And so you you see Paul start addressing this and it's the most angry he is in all of his letters is here to the church in Galatians. So he says, I'm shocked that you're turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You're following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but it's not the good news at all. You're being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. So listen, first, again, with his anger, he offers no word of encouragement here. Maybe someone taught you one point, it's like, hey, when you correct someone, you got to do the... uh, the sugar and spice, right? You say some sweet to him first, then you say the hard stuff, then you follow up with the sugar again, right? You got to sandwich the critique with some encouragement. Paul is not doing any of that. He doesn't offer any word of encouragement. And then he says he's shocked. And this, is, this word is like, it's easy for us to read. Um, it's a huge word. The, the closest I think that could come to it is like surprise disgust. It's like something so awful has happened that it's taken his breath away. It's, it's like an angry, how could you? It's somewhere between how could you and how dare you? You know, it's, it's a physical reaction he's having. Surprised, disgust, angry, bewildered. Why? Because they've turned away from the true gospel so quickly to an imposter gospel. People who have twisted the truth. And then he takes it up another notch in verse 8. He says, let God's curse fall on anyone, including us or even an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preach to you. I say again what we have said before. If anyone preaches any other good news than the one you welcomed, let that person be cursed. Paul's not pulling punches here. Let, the, let fire from heaven fall on somebody who twists this curse. Now, these verses in Galatians... Um, you know, St. Tim Keller, the Pope of the Protestant Church, 
He described these first 10 verses as like walking down a long hallway where you can just peek into these hallways, you peek into doors. You don't necessarily get a full view of the door. You just get these little ideas. This is some of what's going on here. We don't have time to go into everything that this is unpacking, but we catch glimpses of what's waiting for us in the rest of Galatians. So in the scope of the Bible, a curse is God's response to an abuse of freedom. God's given us freedom but then we've twisted it and done something sideways with it. God says, you have a whole world. And in this world, you get a garden. You can eat anything you want except for that one thing. And these people said, well, we're going to go eat it anyway. The, the curse is about an abuse of freedom, hopefully showing consequences that are so severe that we turn away, that, that we stay away. So listen, Galatians at its core is a book about freedom. But the truth is, and this is hard for us to swallow because, you know, for, for most of us, and I say this with a lot of awareness of my own soul and a lot of love for this place and this country, many of us are far more American than we are Christian. And, and what I mean by that is we're comfortable with the invitations and commands of Jesus until they start pressing up against free market capitalism or until they start pressing up against this kind of a, a, autonomous free will, do whatever I want kind of a thing. And, and listen, just to be clear, um, I think that capitalism is an awful system that objectifies people. I just think it's better than every other awful system that we've come up with here, right? Like when we get to heaven, we will not be in a capitalist system. We'll be in a monarchy where what the king wants goes. And, and right now, free market capitalism is the best way we have of curtailing evil and the, the, the wicked sinful nature of other humans. Like I'm pro-America, I'm pro-freedom. And most of us, uh, but freedom, here's what I'm trying to say. This book is about freedom. And here in America, a lot of us like talking about freedom. We like the idea of freedom. Like we like talking about quitting smoking or like we t like talking about getting better in our marriage or like we t like talking about losing weight. It's, it's great to talk about those things. It's much harder to do those things. Freedom is far more difficult and far more threatening than I think any of us are aware of. And that's something we're going to spend a lot of time talking about it. But, but at the core of this threat that freedom feels, that, that freedom brings about in us is the reality that freedom always requires risk and limitation. When you think of freedom... If your thought is like, well, we just do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, you know that's not true. And you thank God that that's not true. There's simple examples like most of you went to sleep last night. And if you don't go to sleep for a few nights, you die, right? Like you have to slow down. You, you have to sleep. Can you imagine what life would be like if, if you were free on the highway? No turn signals, no speed limits, no on-ramps, no off-ramps, no stops. On, like, you know how many people would die if there was that kind of freedom. Freedom always brings about risks and limitations. It's not like the Wild West out there. Um, true freedom is about embracing limitations to be who we were created to be. And that's part of the risk. What limitations do I embrace? Think, think about if freedom is you being who God made you to be. If you sit with that thought long enough, you'll start getting scared. Because what if everyone sees who I think I really am? What if I step in that direction and I don't have what it takes? What if I take these things seriously? What if I really do quit my job to go be this thing that I feel like God's made me to be? You'll start feeling the threat and the risk. And this ties into this idea of beliefs because I think most of us in our church 
despite this gospel of grace we've heard for so many years, I think most of us fundamentally believe God is disappointed in me and I'm inherently lacking in some way. So what, what does God see when he sees me? Someone who could be doing a little bit better, right? He's, yeah, I guess I love you, but I mean, come on, really? Still doing that 10 years down? You, you still doing that? And then we have this voice in our head that says, maybe I don't have what it takes to really do this. So what do we do with that? How do we respond? Most of us try to manage that internal anxiety one of two ways. We create all of these rules to follow. How do I know I'm doing good enough? Well, here's all the things that I did today. And we get to go home at night, take our hat off, hang it on the hook of like, I read my Bible. I served at the soup kitchen. I didn't scream at my children. I, whatever the things that you think God requires of you might be. And if we do all of those things, then we'll know that we're good people. And we create these real tight lines with real neat boxes. And if we check all of them, that's how I know I'm good enough at the end of the day. It's no freedom. It's not a relationship. It's a list of rules that you've decided to follow. On the other end of the spectrum, some people will say, well, I'm just washed by the blood of Jesus. I'll do whatever I want. I'm forgiven by God, and I'll just do whatever I want. One way to not, not worry about the rules anymore is to just abandon the idea of rules altogether. These are the two roads of license and legalism, and it's become how most of us tend to handle our relationship with God, one way or the other. And now, this is going to be a little bit philosophical for a few minutes, all right? So just hang with me. This brings me to one of my favorite topics, and that's the topic of the heretic. You all know the heretics? These are the people Christians used to burn alive, which I'm not in favor of, okay? I'm not, I'm not pro-setting people on fire. Um, here's what heretics do. Uh, and this is what Paul is arguing about here. Heretics. They take a single item from God's body of truth and they bag the rest of it. They make this one truth the preferred truth. And they teach others to do the same. Um, Eugene Peterson, probably my favorite pastor, said, uh, he says, there's simplification in that choice, which is the attraction. Life is complicated, amen? It's gray, it's confusing. I don't care what stage of life you're at. It's hard and it's confusing. And so the appeal of the heretic is they say, here's a simple answer for you. Here's, remember that book, The Secret? You remember that book a few years ago? It's like, the one thing that will solve all things. It's like, really, the unified theory of everything. Wonderful. They simplify something and and teach you to just follow this. So the heretic, there's simplification in that choice, which is the attraction, but there's immense impoverishment. When you simplify something, you reduce something. And so how does this take root in our churches? What does this kind of gospel distortion look like in our churches? There's two kinds of churches I see in Southern Indiana. There's lots, but that I think it's germane to this part of the sermon. Uh, the first is the decision church, which I would believe, I would guess most of us have come from one of those churches. That's where you have to make a decision for Christ, right? And you hear things like, do you know that you know that you know that you were saved at this time, at this place? So if you can't say on June 7th, 1997 at 4.45 p.m., I gave my life to Christ, then maybe you're not actually a Christian. So what happens in these churches is you have to make a decision for Christ, you have to accept Christ, and then life becomes about believing and behaving right. The Christian life becomes a paint by numbers where here are the things you have to do and here are the things you have to believe. When you sin, life becomes about sin management. And when you sin, the question becomes, are you praying and are you reading your Bible? Right? Yeah, anybody been there? Anybody been in that church? Yeah, right? Are you, are you praying and are you reading your Bible? And so the gauge there becomes your level of faith. And there's some denominations built totally on your level. If you had more faith, this tragedy wouldn't 
have happened to you. If you had more faith, these things wouldn't have happened to you. And so if you don't believe right or you don't behave right, you become the dreaded backslider. And somehow you're fallen from grace and you're on the outside. So one of these churches will say, how do you manage this life of freedom? What is the gospel? Well, yeah, God saves you. And then you got to do all of these things if you want to stay in. Now, if you grew up in that church, you probably started going to one of these other kinds of churches. And that would, you know, it's like the progressive church or the open and affirming church, the welcoming church. What, what do those churches do? These are the places that say all roads lead to God. It's just a matter of being a good person. Doesn't that sound so good? Like, listen, it doesn't matter what you say about Jesus. It doesn't matter your take on, pick your moral issue. It doesn't matter what you think about abortion or, I don't know, health care for all or homosexuality. None of those issues matter. What matters is your relationship with God. Be a good person. I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. This, I would argue, makes the gospel not good news at all. What is the problem? Well, this Christianity stuff is just so narrow. You'll hear these things in these churches. It's just so narrow. To solve that, they will say, be a good person. But listen, like, you have to see the incredible irony in both of these. To solve the narrow Christianity, they say, be a good person. But do you realize this means bad people have no hope? Who is the gospel good news for? Well, those who are doing pretty good. And what's ironic about this is if you bag all of the rules, if you bag any notion of right and wrong, when someone says, be a good person, my response is, well, who decides what that is? Who decides? Who gets to say who's good and who's not good? And if all it takes is just be a good person, all of the people who are not good people have no hope. In an effort to become inclusive, they become the most exclusive flavor of Christianity. Because all of the people who are addicted, who are in prison, who are a mess, who had awful things done to them that they didn't vote for, right? Like, what? like most of us, who is really a good person? If you want to take the words of Jesus seriously, who did he say was a good person? Nobody! Do you see the problem we have here? We try to simplify a problem and we make it even worse. It becomes the most exclusive kind of Christianity. So listen, knowing who to listen to is crucial because the nature of the gospel is at stake. What you believe about the gospel informs and transforms everything about your life. So real simply, who do we believe? Believe Jesus and those who he sent, like Paul. Why is it so important? Because everything is at stake, everything about how you live your life. And so here's like the beautiful softball for today. What should we believe then? Paul comes in laser focused. The core issue that's being debated in the book of Galatians is this group of people have come in and said, Moses needs to finish what Jesus started. So great, you made a decision for Jesus. Praise the Lord. Let me walk you through the Old Testament because there's all of these rules you have to follow if you want to really be accepted by God. How do you know you're fully accepted, that you're fully under the pleasure of God, that you're being a good Christian? You have to follow all of the Old Testament rules again. Jesus gives you a good booster shot, but he doesn't secure the deal. This is the issue Paul will continually return to throughout Galatians. And he blows that whole thing up in two verses. He says, Jesus gave his life for our sins. 
just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. So let's think about these two different models. First one, the believe right and behave right. Paul says Jesus gave his life for our sins. He didn't say he gave his life to help you do a little bit better. And if you notice in those churches, who looks good at the end? Like the pastor who stands up and is, have you ever been in those churches where all sin is in past tense? I remember 20 years ago when I struggled with this. I remember 25 years ago when I used to do that thing. And you have this sense of like the pastors are these superheroes or that person who's been at it for 35 years and boy, they just haven't sinned in the last 27 of them or whatever. Paul is setting up here. No, Jesus died for our sins, which means God gets all of the glory. Not you and not your performance and and not your behavior. Jesus died for our sins. To think your obedience is required to save your life is to say the life of Jesus wasn't enough for you. It's a rejection of Jesus's life to say that there's more required of you or now you have all of these rules to follow. This is why Paul is so mad. This is why he says, be cursed because you're looking at the lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world and saying, you are not enough for me. And Paul is saying, be cursed if you believe that. Jesus died for our sins. And what's more, look at this word. You go by whole books on this one word right here, rescue. Uh, He doesn't say Jesus threw us a lifeline and said, good luck, right? Like on the storm-tossed seas and he throws a life preserver and says, give it your best shot. It says he grabbed a corpse and rescued us. This is deliverance language, not empowerment language. He lifted you up when you were dead. It's not about your ability. He rescues a dead person. So to the first model that says it's about the level of your faith, the true gospel rejects that completely. It's not the level of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. What is the object of your faith? It's Jesus. Well, how much faith do you need? Apparently just a little itty bitty bit right? Like a little tiny bit, enough to say Jesus is Lord. And beyond that, it's all grace. God has saved you and rescued you. And if it's a rescue mission, do you know what else that means? The only prerequisite is that you be in need of rescue. This gospel where Jesus comes to die for all of your sins and rescue you means that anyone can be saved. Like that should make you a little bit uncomfortable because we are a people who draw lines on all kinds of issues. How many times in the last two years have you heard somebody say, well, I don't know how they can call themselves a Christian and fill in the blank. I got in trouble for talking about Revoice a couple weeks ago because all these people were saying, how can you call yourself a Christian and still say you're a homosexual? Well, hang on now. What makes you a Christian? I, didn't, I wasn't under the impression that it was your sexuality that made you a Christian. What about in the election? How can you call yourself a Christian and vote for this person? Really? I didn't realize that the gospel of Jesus was open only to Republicans or only to Democrats. How can you call yourself a Christian and still... Any of those are distortions. There's all kinds of implications about if you're willing to go down the road and say, Jesus is Lord, right? If Jesus is Lord, that means you listen to him. His opinion matters more than yours. But what gets you in the family? What is the good news of the gospel? It's Jesus, period. And anyone who tries to add on top of that, Paul says, let that person be cursed. Your rescue is not based on your performance or your level of commitment or your spiritual promises. It's based on the object of your faith, Jesus. What should you believe about God? This is the simplest way I can put it to you. Believe that he's a loving father. 
who sent his son to rescue you by grace, and he will hold you to the end by grace. Like, life is hard and confusing. All kinds of things happen that we don't expect, that we don't see coming. God, help us if we think that we're going to be held tightly by the arms of God based on how religious you are, based on how well you're performing morally, based on how much emotional equilibrium you've achieved, or whatever we like to think. If anyone tries to tell you a gospel other than this, let them be cursed. If anyone tries to lay down a list of rules you need to follow to experience the pleasure of God, let them be cursed. This is the fight of our lives, to believe the true gospel that God rescues us and now we are free. And it's the fight of our lives to learn and receive who God made us to be and take the risk to go and be that. God rescues and now we are free. Thanks be to God. So we, we remember what secures this promise by turning to the night Jesus was betrayed when he took a loaf of bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine and he says, this is my blood shed for you. Drink this and remember what I've done for you. This seals your relationship with God. And oh, if we could believe this. What do you come in this week thinking that you need to be pleasing to God? What did you do this week that's convinced you that God's left you? Hear the promise of Jesus. What keeps you safe with God and secures his pleasure in you is Jesus' bloodshed for you. Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread. You can dip it in wine or juice. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it, um, and there'll be gluten-free elements to my left, your right. I'll pray for us, and then Christians, you can come. Uh, remember our freedom. Remember our hope. Let's pray.